Welcome to the sixth episode of the podcast. This is your proprietor, Tony Ortega, coming to you from an undisclosed location deep inside the interior of the Earth's crust, otherwise known as the underground bunker. Recently at the bunker, we had a remarkable piece written by someone we've been talking to for a long time. Pete Griffiths, who lives in Ireland, is a former Scientologist who has worked very hard to expose the organization's abuses. And this time, he sent us a really readable narrative about his own journey in Scientology. The feedback on the piece kind of caught us by surprise. The bunker community really liked this piece by Pete. So I thought we should spend some time talking with him. Hey, Peter, thank you so much for joining me. Um, you know, I've been talking to you for years, and we've uh, written several stories about you uh, at the bunker. Uh-huh. But this is the first time Pete Griffiths actually wrote something for us. Is it? And I think, is it? I think so. Actually, I think it is, yeah. yeah. But you surprised me. You sent me this piece, and it was just, not only was it really good, but I got a lot of feedback from that. People really liked that story. What possessed you to write something at this time? Well, it just it just occurred to me I had some time to spare, and I just sat down, and I just started tapping away. Um, I felt it was a story that I, that I wanted to tell because I haven't really um, talked about it too often. And it was quite a cathartic one for me because – it's what got me out. It's, it's what got me physically out. Um, I, I really should have realized before what was going on, but I didn't. And strangely enough, it was just in recent times, certainly in the last five or six years, an ex-Scientologist said to me, hey, is it true that you organized an event once um, for Scientology and walked out halfway through? And I, I went, what? what? What is this? And I really had to go away and think about it, like what they were talking about. And it was this this mission event, this mission event that I'd organized. So I thought that was a good story to, to talk about. But not only that, the difficulties of um, setting up a mission and why the hell did I want to set up a mission anyway, you know, um, when really the org was a complete failure, it had gone completely wrong, I'd wasted three years. But why the hell did I still want to tell people about Scientology and try and make Scientologists? So I thought it would be an interesting um, angle, if you like. Yeah, that was one of the things I liked about it was the way you talked about how you could see that there were problems. You could see that things weren't working properly. Yeah. But the ideas behind Scientology still had some hold over you. And I think that's very common in Scientology that kind of people go through different stages of, of disillusionment. Oh, um, definitely. Definitely. I mean, really I should have walked when I, when I left the org and got declared a suppressive person, I was declared suppressive person for, for blowing the org. It wasn't for anything else. There's another little part to that, that I didn't really um, write about. And that was, um, you know, one of the ways they keep people in is, um, the threat of the freeloader bill. You've heard of that, right? Right. So I was constantly asked, when are you going to pay your freeloader? Even when I had left the org and started the mission, I was still asked, when are you going to pay your freeloader? So eventually I went to the org, which was a good old um, half a day's travel, you know, 
and um, they'd not even produced a bill. So they didn't have the they didn't hand me a piece of paper and say, this is what you owe. So I had to actually say, I had to, I had to ask them, well, how much do I owe you? Oh, oh, we'll work that out. And it's like everything in Scientology. If it's not there for you, they're going to sort it out later. And eventually somebody came from the org to visit me at home. This person was OT3. So, you know, whoa, you know, we've got the big guns coming in. And after about two hours of trying to get money out of me, she admitted that she'd failed. And she relaxed a lot and then started to drink the tea and, and what have you. And then she turned around and said, do you know, I did a clay demo of this before I came here tonight. And I just thought, oh, my God, that is so funny. And you know the you know about clay demos, right? Right. So she had modeled this encounter yes. in in clay. Yes. Literally in clay, like the kind <laughs> that children play with and make little figures. That's right. She she had, had clay demoed the whole encounter. Um, how she did it, I've no idea. But Pete, give us some money. I don't have any. Pete, give us some money. I don't have any. Pete, give us some money. Sorry, how do you how do you put that in clay? But anyway, I thought it was really funny. But that was just another interaction with the org that had declared me SP. Now the interesting thing is that the rest of Scientology didn't seem to care about that. You know, they were happy for me to uh, run the mission uh, because it was doing well. That's the, the only reason I got away with that. If I'd not been any good at it, I dare say I'd have been double SP. <laughs> Let me just back up a little and explain right. uh, the freeloader for people that don't understand. When in, in Scientology, there are people that are in different sort of statuses. One is just public Scientologists. These are people who do not work for Scientology. They're just sort of parishioners, or members, and they, they come in. They're members of the public. They come in, they take courses. Then there are people who are on staff. These are the people who work at your local church. The word in Scientology is org. And then there are people who work in something called the Sea Org. These are the most dedicated. Uh, they sign billion-year contracts. And when you're working for Scientology, either as staff or on Sea Org, you can then take some courses or get some auditing for free or low price or whatever, thinking, well, that's a perk of the job. But then if you ever dare to leave when they don't want you to, then they hit you with this bill called a freeloader debt saying that you need to pay for all kinds of things, not just courses you might have taken while you were working for the church, but training they think you got, a room and board. It's completely illegal. Companies cannot do this. Companies cannot, if you worked for just a regular company and they sent you on a training and then you'd left a couple of years later, they cannot send you a bill for that training. It's, it's completely, <laughs> it's completely illegal. If anybody takes their freeloader debt to court, the court will back them up, but they they count on people not knowing that. It's just a, another threat, so that people won't want to leave. Did the woman ever tell you what your freeloader debt was? No, she didn't even bring the bill with her. You know, I don't I don't know if she clay demoed the bill or not. But um, if you're telling someone they've got a freeloader bill, you've got to show them a bill. Um, I actually did some training in uh, Sussex. I did the organization executive briefing course that took six months to complete so that's quite a lot of um 
it was thousands. Let's put it that way. I've and talked then, to I've talked to former Scientologists that have paid the church hundreds of thousands of dollars oh, yeah, in freelo in freeloader debt, and you should see the look on their face when I tell them, you know, yeah. you didn't have to pay that. They they could not have legally enforced it. That's amazing, isn't it? Um, but people, but people will pay it because they're afraid if they don't, then they'll lose connection with the rest of their family. Exactly, and and the whole thing it's like when John Sweeney called his book "The Church of Fear," I thought, right, on so many levels, because you're afraid of everything. You know, you, I mean, I was afraid to be called an SP, and I can remember well um, when I opened this envelope and this like goldenrod dropped out, and you know, do you know that feeling when you get that awful shock that goes right through you? It's like an electric bolt. You, know, you just go, oh. You know, um, I picked myself up, but it was a pretty horrible moment to know that you'd been declared a suppressive person. Um, my actual freeloader bill, going back to that for a minute, because I spent some time in the US as well doing the flag executive briefing course, um, which was the big daddy. I didn't complete it because I blew from flag. But anyway, that's another story. Um and while I was there, I was forced to sign a couple of um, notations. And it was like some sort of secrecy thing. You know, well, you know you're, going to, you're going to do this course, so you have to sign this secrecy clause. If you leave, um, you know, if you blow, you will have to pay $50,000. And I signed at least two of those, possibly more. So my, my freeloader bill would have been in six figures, whichever way you look at it. And I never paid a penny. So I'm happy about that. <laughs> yeah, those, those uh, non-disclosure agreements, um, that's 50000 per incident. So I remember when, uh, when Debbie Cook uh, was sued and they were saying she had signed a document like that that said like $10,000 for re revealing something. And then they were going to calculate it by the number of emails she had sent. <laughs> which was in the tens of thousands. And so oh, she was looking at millions of dollars in liability, which is, which seems like a joke, but you know, her attorney, Ray Jeffrey was says, you know, we have to take that seriously. They're going to try to do that. So it's just, Oh amazing. yeah. And it's all to keep you in and it's all to keep you in check. Um, and if not in to keep you quiet, you know, um, speaking out about Scientology, for anyone to do it is a massive undertaking. You know, it, it takes a lot of courage to do it. Once you get used to it, you know, it's great. You know, you, you, you feel better, you feel relieved. But to actually make that first step is huge for anybody, you know. I'm still so amazed, though, that after you had been declared a suppressive person, <laughs> which is the church declaring you an enemy, yeah, that, that you still not only wanted to try to find a way to start uh, to, to run a mission, but that they went along with it. Yeah. Well, I actually thought that L. Ron Hubbard had answers. Um, I had problems with Scientology itself, with, with, with other staff members and with the management. But L. Ron Hubbard was, to me, untouchable. Everything he'd said worked and was great. I didn't have, uh, I hadn't done my OT levels then, so I couldn't compare it. Um, I, I did my OT level since I left, like like a lot of other people. But um, it, it was just, oh, gosh, I, I don't know. I don't know. Ask me that again, because I've just forgotten my thread. 
No, I just, I was saying how surprising it was that you would want to try and right. do a mission after being declared and that they would go along right. with it. That just, that's one, of course, one of the most surprising things about that piece. It was wrote. all, it was all the Hubbard charisma and mystique and belief that he actually had found answers um, and that he had workable technologies to solve drug addiction problems, educational problems, you know, the whole list. Um, it was because I felt that Scientology had some good in it that I wanted to make Scientologists. I thought, you know, this is, you know, that's what I really want to do. Um, how I got away with that, I have no idea. Um, I contacted the mission network. They knew full well that I'd have problems with the org. They didn't seem to care. The fact that somebody wanted to run the mission or any, wants to start a mission, shall we say, they were happy to go along with it. And I think I mentioned in the piece that um, they said, well, you can't be the mission holder, but if you can find somebody to be the mission holder, you can be the executive director. And that's really all I wanted. So as I say, I found somebody who said they'd do it. Um, and then we had some fun trying to get a mission starter packet together, which that was something else. I mean, like that was my first visit to Edinburgh Org. And can you imagine like a really damp, musty room full of like like books? I do believe Edinburgh was once the publications org um, going back to the 60s. Have you heard that? I, I think that Jefferson Hawkins talks about that right. in his book. But but I think they moved to Copenhagen after that, oh, right? Okay, okay. Well, it, this room looked like they'd left some of it there. Um, and I had to go through these like books and try and figure out you know, what what can I actually get from here to sell to people? And there was nothing, to be honest. You know, there was a few old copies of books that were interesting because the covers were different. But I, I think it was in the 90s that they brought out a new um, set of books. Now, the latest, the latest um, new basic book package was only, what, was it about 2005, was it, I think? Yeah. I can't, I can't remember exactly, but it's like every 10 years or so, they bring out a new edition of the books. Right. And if you've got stock of old books, you can't sell them to anybody because like they, they're going to want to buy the newer books. Who isn't? So my mission starter package consisted of old books, um, old Dianetics books that, that didn't look anything like as good as the Jefferson Hawkins cover because they were pre-Jefferson Hawkins books. So... I ended up with basically a pile of crap and did the best I could with that. So, but yeah. you did, but you also said that just putting an ad in the paper about the personality test had some, uh, you know, results. That was the thing that made it successful. That was the only thing that made it successful. I, I don't recall whether, whether I actually had a, like a heading on it, like, you know, find out your true potential. If I did, it would be something like that. But I can't remember. I've not kept any of this stuff. But I put it on the back of um, a free newspaper. Um, I managed to fit the entire OCA on the back of the paper. And I left off all mention of Dianetics and Scientology. I think I may have put the name of the town and then Mission. But um, now, if anybody asked me, I would tell them exactly what it was. I didn't try and hide anything. But I think just to get the initial uh, response, I left off all mention of Dianetics and Scientology because part of me realized that would be the wisest move, that people 
were going to want to know if, if they realized what it was, you know. But I got a fantastic response. And the response I got from, from those newspaper ads is what got the mission up and running and kept it running for two or three years, you know. So I didn't do too badly. Um, that, but that seems pretty inventive that you, you put the actual test as the ad rather than say, we have a test, come down and take it. You yeah. literally put the test on the page. Absolutely. It was on the back page of the paper. And I had like like a sheet of these things came in. It was probably about six inches high. And um, the other thing I did as well, um, because, because I had to do everything, okay, so I, can you imagine what it's like to mark an OCA test, right? So you have 200 questions, you have three possible answers, and you've got to go through each one and tick a box or whatever to get the graph. You know, the people end up with the graph when, when they're done. So I didn't bother doing it unless I'd already pre-called the person and they said they were going to come in. Because otherwise, I, I couldn't waste my time like like doing graphs for these hundreds of um, OCAs that I got. So I just did the ones of people who were coming in, and that way I saved a bit of time. But the fact that I had to do everything was just a nightmare because you, you can't do everything. You know, you're, you're promoting, you know, you're, you're dealing with, okay, so, you know, you're doing the OCA tests, you're, you're looking at them, you're calling the people in to come in and get the results. Then you have to mark them. You have to give them the results. Then you have to sit them down and do the ruin finding, which is, uh, oh, my God. But I, I, I can't believe that I knew how to do all this stuff. But, of course, I've been trained to do it, you know. Um, well, it's I, interesting. I never felt that I was really all that successful and all that good. But, obviously, I was compared to everybody else, you know. So, yeah. Well, it's uh, it is interesting to me that, you know, we're still talking today about something Hubbard dreamed up 70 years ago. And it's because there are elements of it that are that, you know, he came up with some very clever things like people are fascinated with the idea of taking a test that's going to reveal something to oh, yeah. them about themselves. Yeah. And so you've got, you know, here's our personality test. If you fill this out, we're going to be able to produce a graph that tells you things about yourself. And that's very tempting to people. And uh, and then this parlor trick of auditing that convinces people that something real is going on. I mean, these are very clever little tricks that Hubbard came up with oh, yeah. that that do work as far as getting people's attention. Yes. Uh, and so that was what you know, I'm really one of the things I really liked about your piece is it reminded us of that. All you had to do was put that personality test in the paper and bam. People, people can't help themselves. They want to do that. They want to find out about themselves. You know, whereas if you told them, okay, this is your first step on this long journey through this totalitarian organization that's going to take over your life, you know, nobody would do it. Can you imagine if you'd said that, you know, uh, or <laughs> if, if we'd had South Park, I would never have been able to do that, you know. But um, it was fascinating to, to sit down. Like the ruin finding is the key because then you've got to work out – well, what's the person's ruin? And they've got to agree that that's the ruin. Like, like you can't impose a ruin on them that you think is the ruin. So, and this like, is another way of saying there's a button you can push that some exactly. some some vulnerability 
Can you just give me an example of a couple of people, different people, and what their ruins were, just to help well, people understand it? I'd like to say that all the people that I evaluated and got in to do a course or some auditing, I, I want to apologize right now for actually doing that. Um, there's probably about three of those people still in that I know of, and I just feel so bad for what I did because I was convinced that I was doing the right thing. But some people were, like one guy in particular, he, like, he just um, turned around and said, I want to go clear. And I went, okay, well, you need to get some auditing. And he goes, yeah, yeah, I read that bit in the book. Let's get some auditing. So he was easy. You know, it was easy what he wanted to do. Another guy was um, quite religious. And I can remember saying, well, that's okay. You can be any religion you want and still a Scientologist. Why don't you do this course? And I think I stuck him on um, personal values and integrity or something. I can't remember exactly what it was. But there's a course for everything. You know, problems with your girlfriend, you've got a course for that. Problems with whatever, you've got a course for it. Dynamics of money. You know, I thought, oh, that'd be good because you know, I'm having a terrible time with money. I never make enough. Um, I did the course, but it didn't really help that much. But yeah, it, it's it's you've got to sort of like find something that they'd be interested in and they want to do. Now, of course, the other aspect of this is people would come to me and then they'd kind of like pass through me and the mission and go to a higher place like the org, you know, so like like I was supposed to feed people to the org and I did, but not a great number. It's always a dwindling number. So I have, I, I don't know, for argument's sake, say 5,000 papers go out. Of the 5,000 OCAs, I get 100 back. Of the 100 I got back, 10 people come back to me for evaluation. Of the 10, four might be interested in doing something. And they're the numbers in Scientology. I noticed it in the org as well with body routing that we had to do to get people in. It's a reducing number until you actually get someone to buy a book or start a course, you know? Right. And that's that's why Scientology puts out so much material. They have you've, to. Got, you've, you've got to put out this very wide net just to get a few fish. Absolutely. Yeah. And then uh, after things started, well, then there's the infamous dinner uh, when nobody oh, would. Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> what a terrible feeling that must have been. That, but it was terrible on one level, and at the same time, it was an eye opener because I realized here I am trying to make Scientologists, and Scientology's booby trapped. You know, it, it's like here's all these Scientologists. I, th I think there was a couple of hundred forced to come to my town and have dinner in a hotel that I'd organized because, excuse me. UK management had told them that's what they had to do. They didn't have a choice. They had to be there because it was an international event. I forget exactly what it was, but it was on a level of um, May the 9th or Dianetics Day or some, some, something anyway. And obviously what happens after that is the registrars um, uh, groove into action and start selling things. Um, they had to be there. They had no choice. But really, I mean, what a sad group of individuals. 
There was one in particular that was a bit of a high flyer and made loads of money. He's since passed away. Um, there was like a there was there was a handful that that were doing very well for themselves and making loads of money. Everybody else was was like this awful, downcast, downtrodden, not even dressed very well, you know, like wearing terrible clothes um, and clearly no money, you know, to even pay. I mean, how did they even get there? My God, I think they all shared lifts or something like that, you know, in cars, like what, what do you call it in America? Sharing rides or something? Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm trying to get people into Scientology and tell them how wonderful it is and how it's going to, you know, enable you to realize your full potential and be the real you. Wouldn't you want that? And there's all these people who are just like miserable and glum and like really not a good advert. So when that night was over and you've got to go home and sit there on your own and go, what the hell just happened? How the hell am I going to pay that back? And it's like, I can't keep doing this. I can't, with my hand on my heart, say to people, this is fantastic. You need to do this. L. Ron Hubbard, blah, blah, blah. You know, I can't do that knowing that the end result is they're going to be sat there, semi-starving, badly dressed, unhappy, not achieving anything that they've been promised. So, yeah, that was like, wow. But still, mentally... I didn't get it, you know. Um, it was definitely the moment for me because that's when I stopped producing as a mission. Um, I, and like I think I mentioned it in the piece that you phone in your stats every Thursday, and I can remember <laughs> being terrified to phone in and go, "Well, what's the book sales? Well, no book sales this week. Well, how many auditing hours?" Well, no auditing hours this week. Well, how how much gross income? Well, no gross income this week. And I, th I think there's about 25 or 30 different statistics, and every single one was zero. Oh, miserable. Six weeks, yeah. <laughs> and then um, I suppose in some way I was committing Scientology suicide because I knew they wouldn't be able to put up with that for much longer. And they told me basically to get lost, you know. So that was good. So I probably shot myself in the foot. Um, I didn't know how else to get out. And it's hard to be honest with yourself. It's hard to look at these factors and go, hang on a minute. No one's doing well. All these people are doing badly. And yet I'm telling people they're going to do great. So that was the, the eye-opening moment without a doubt. But even after that point, Pete, when you when you did get out, you still did some independent Scientology after that? Um, not really, no. I, 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 I kept a lot of the materials that I had. I gave most of them away. I, I'd had some things that I'd been awarded, you know, as being like this great mission guy. Um, a, picture, a picture of L. Rod Hubbard um, wearing shiny <laughs> pants and a shiny shirt. That's all, and a cravat. That's all I can remember, black and white. When I finally... Years later, like an add another 14 years onto the timeline, when I finally uh I, I cannot remember whether it was whether it was Peace of Blue Sky or Burface Messiah, it was one of those books, and I'm just reading it, and I just got to the OT3 a bit, I took a deep breath and read it, and I went, 
for fuck's sake. <laughs> so it's like, that was it. I went round the house, rounded up everything I had, and just burnt it. Just built a big bonfire in the back and burnt the bloody lot and said, right, that's going. The picture of Hubbard, I thought, you know what? That's a good frame. I'll keep the frame, but the picture's going. You know, so, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but but it took 14 years to to pluck up the courage to read Burfade's Messiah. Um, the the time of the time of the dinner is 1994. Just to uh, give a bit of a timeline, when I got involved in Scientology, it was like April 1987. So seven years had, had gone on from then, and then from 1994, we're going to. Um, Actually, it was only 1998. Oh, no, hang on a second. Around about 2000 when I finally um, um, read Burface Messiah. No, no, it was actually later than that. I can't, I can't remember. I'll have to stop and think about it. But it was such an effort to pluck up the courage to read a book that back in 1987, I'd been told not to read. Can you believe that? Incredible. Um, we were called into a briefing, and um, it was new then. It was brand. It was just brand new. It was just just out, and the, they said like, "Oh, by the way, there's this book that's been uh, brought out by uh, by an SP called Russell Miller, and it's in theta, and don't read it. And while you're there, don't watch Panorama tonight either on BBC One. There was no way you could watch Panorama because you're in the bloody orb till one o'clock in the morning working. But um, yeah." Um, it was interesting that I'd always remembered being told not to read this book. So to finally, you know, um, it must have been, uh, let me think about that for a second. I think 2000, 2008, it was 2008. Oh, my God. So I finally read Burface Messiah and go, oh, God. Oh, my God. And then it was almost like the veil was lifted. I realized what it was all about, mainly because the book goes into so much detail. And you know yourself the way it's set out and the way Russell Miller wrote it. He took the Scientology version of L. Ron Hubbard's life story and just took it line by line and then investigated each sep- each line. And every time he said he struck gold because Every line was false and fake and a lie, you know. Oh, man. Yeah, I said that this week in a piece of, about John Atak. That for my money, those are still – there are so many wonderful books written yes. by, by great writers. But Bareface Messiah and Peace of Blue Sky are still, for me, the best books of all time on the um, subject. Yeah. And and Russell's, Miller, Russell's book in particular um, – that setup is so smart where each starts out each chapter saying, okay, here's the church's version. And then he just takes it apart with all this great research. But not only that, it's just so well-written. It's such a fun adventure reading that book. Do you know, I, um, the first time I read the book, as I just told you, I was angry. I was so angry. I went outside and built a bonfire. That's how angry I was. And then a couple of years goes by, and I read the book again. And you know what? I couldn't stop laughing. It was the funniest funniest thing I'd ever read. And I told him this. I got the chance to tell him. I had breakfast with him one time in Florida. And I told him this. And and 
funnily enough, when he when he gave a talk later on, he said, I spoke to an ex-member who read the book and was so angry. And then he read it a, a, a second time. And he couldn't stop laughing. But it is funny. Um, it would make a great movie, you know, um, showing LRH for what he really was, which was a clown and a con man, you know. But, uh, and they really went after him. You know, they made that book very difficult to find oh, God, for many yeah. years. And Russell Russell himself told me about how they created these elaborate plots. They were, they were trying to get him blamed for a bizarre murder. That's right. In Germany, that he, wasn't it? That he had nothing to do with. Yeah. Just crazy. Um, well, you know, what you went through, I think a lot of people go through these stages of of moving from uh you know complete acceptance of not just hubbard's ideas but david miscavige's church and how it operates and then doubts about how the church operates and then doubts about the material i think everyone's different as to how long it takes but you know yours is not the only one i've heard that that took that long Oh, it took a while, and that's why when I look at someone like Chris Shelton, he, like it took him about a year, and he's 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 completely out and almost cured, and it's like, whoa, how did that happen so fast? You know, um, I didn't put a lot of pressure on myself. I didn't have to, you know, because I was too busy raising a, raising a family and you know getting on with my life and putting food on the table. Um, well, that was another thing I enjoyed about your stories. You really made us feel that imperative you were under when here you were trying to make this Scientology stuff work and you had a family to raise. What do they, what do they expect of the, of staff members to, how can you supposed to survive on minimum, you know, less than minimum wage? I know. Oh, less than minimum wage. How about nothing? How about no wages? You know, it's like, and, and you put up with it because you think, well, you know, we're going to clear the planet and you're saving mankind and you sacrifice everything and this is why it's worse to be a sea org member because their sacrifice is much much greater much much greater um oh wow i can't imagine how awful it must be the good side i suppose like when i left the org initially before i started the mission because i was used to working these like 12 13 hour days it was easy to get a job and then that wasn't enough i had to get two jobs you know so i had a day job and an evening job and we were able to make a bit of money, and that was just a great feeling. Um, to be free of it, though, is incredible. Like, because it's it's almost like you don't realize how entrapped you are until you are free, and you can just take a deep breath and go, "Oh my God, I can do what I want." They're not there telling me what to do. They're not, you know, I don't have to like get the stats up. You know, it, it the freedom is amazing when you get it. And funny how they sell Scientology is total freedom. Exactly. It's when you get out, that's when you get total freedom. Yeah. Oh, my God. Oh, I, you know, it's 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 one of those things about Scientology is that they're talking about freedom and they're selling you complete unfreedom. And uh, there's no question about it. You know? Yeah. And uh so much of it is totalitarian language, and it's—I don't know—it's you look at the people and say, "Can't you see what's really going on?" Yeah, but yeah. I guess it's difficult when you're in it. It's horrible because you can't see it, and there's that part of your mind or brain or whatever that is never going to work. It's never going to work until you get out. Um, it, it, it's just the way it is. It's the way Hubbard set it up. 
I've never actually read Nibs's book, and I don't think many people have, but I do believe, I think Jamie DeWolf mentioned that one of the lines in it was a conversation between Nibs. Should we say who Nibs is? Do people know who Nibs is? That's L. Ron Hubbard's first child, his son, L. Ron Hubbard Jr. Who worked with him intensively, even mm-hmm. though he's been wiped out of history. Apparently, Hubbard had said to him, we are the mind fuckers and we're going to fuck with their minds. And that's what it's like. You know, your mind is messed up right from the very beginning because you've got all this hope inside you about what mankind can be and should be and all the rest of it. And they promise that. So you go along because, you know, most people want the best for everybody. So you go along and you believe it and you buy into it. Oh, student hat course. Yeah, what's this? Oh, oh, learn how to study. Oh, yeah, that's great because people don't really learn how to study in college or school. Yeah. <laughs> and it just goes on from there. You go from that to the next one, the next one, the next one. Oh, well, this is the this is the um, executive training. You'll learn how to run any organization in the world. You could go and run Ford Motor Company once you've done this course. You know, so they're selling you this this amazing stuff. The truth is, it's a crock of shit. All of it, you know. But it, you've got to get to that point where you realize it, you know. So, oh, poor Scientologists, please wake up. Now, when you were when this the the era that you're talking about, where you were at the org and then you were at the mission, mm-hmm. that was in England, right? That wasn't in Ireland. It was in England, yeah. Um, when I was running the mission, I was against Dublin mission. Uh, I used to get great pleasure in beating them in the birthday game. And I knew the guys in Dublin mission quite well. Um, but it was in England. And it was the Jefferson Hawkins period. It was the Jefferson Hawkins Dianetics um, that kicked off in 86 or 87. And it was it was that the crest of that wave, you might say, you know. And just for those who don't understand what we're talking about, Jefferson Hawkins was a, a Scientologist in the Sea Org who uh, came up through the publications division and um, got into the marketing of, of Scientology and Dianetics. And then in the 80s, he came up with this brilliant idea for a TV ad, which uh, if you're a little you know, more Pete my age, we definitely remember seeing on television this, this erupting volcano. Yeah. And it would say, what's the key to a good marriage? Page 53. <laughs> How do you get a better job? Page 105. Yeah. And it, it was intriguing. It had, uh, for that time, a kind of a futuristic sound track behind it. Uh, and it was an incredibly successful ad. Thanks to Jefferson Hawkins. Dianetics, the book Dianetics, enjoyed this huge boom. Yeah. In, from like 86 to 89, 90. And that was probably Scientology's greatest extent. It's its height of membership. Of course, David Miscavige would never say it even then, but especially not today, thanks to Jefferson Hawkins. And, and it was his inventive marketing that got yeah. people intrigued. Um, but it's all been kind of downhill since then. But uh, that was that was the, the period that... Uh, we're talking about but then so you ended up in ireland and you're you're on you're on the west coast of ireland is that right? right i am now yeah um that's exactly right when we first moved here actually i contacted um dublin mission just to say hello and people were very offhand but there was no oh you're that sp people were a little bit pleased to hear from me but you know 
time had gone on. It was four years since I'd had, since I'd left, um, or since since I'd been removed from the mission. Um, Should we talk a little bit about the strange, strange circumstance of Scientology in Ireland today? Oh gosh, uh, yeah. Funnily enough, I was just talking about it with someone earlier. Um, okay. Scientology in Ireland for years and years and years was a little office above a hairdressing salon on a city centre street. Now, per L. Ron Hubbard's policy, that's the right place to be. City centre street with a lot of body flow, so you can stand outside and get people in and say, hey, come on, come and do a personality test, you know. Um, and really over the last number of years five six years is it when did it start with the um almost 10 years now is it oh my god so so first of all they bought the um uh, I'm, I'm going to call it the special affairs office but it was the national affairs office right on merrion square now <laughs> the funny thing about that is that when l ron hubbard was in ireland in the 1950s in 1954 he rented an office on Merrion Square, number 69. Um, I went to have a look at it one day, and there was a guy who was moving out. And I said, oh, did you know this was L. Ron Hubbard's office? He says, yes, I, I know the very one. I'm, I'm renting the very one. He was moving out. But he, he showed us the office, and we just walked in, had a look around. Mm. Nothing to see. It was just a building like any other. But... Somebody somewhere sunk a lot of millions of pounds into buying a building on the same square. Um, it was more or less opposite. Actually, straight two or three doors up from Oscar Wilde's house, which I always thought was really funny, um, bearing in mind like the Scientology attitude towards gayness, you know. Right. Um, but they bought this building. Now, if you know anything about how a Scientology organization is run, it's seven divisions, and the very first division is what this, this what this National Affairs Office was doing, which is establishing Scientology in the area. It's pushing all the front groups, and that was bought before they then went along and bought another building for a bit more money, I believe. I think um, it was called the Victory Church. It was in Tala, which is not city centre, no body traffic, so you're in the middle of nowhere, and it had been a church that, I don't know, it was some kind of a, a fraudulent church, ironically. And um, I think they paid about 12 million, and I don't know where this money's come from. I mean, I always thought, where's the money coming from? Where's it all coming from? Because when you have a small office above a hairdressing shop, you're not making millions. Absolutely <laughs> not. In fact, actually, Scientology is recognized as a business in this country and they have to publish their accounts right now i know from looking at them they're not real they're, they're completely made up and you know shoot me for saying it but there's no way is any of that true but they certainly weren't making millions that's for sure so they they bought this bloody place anyway and they spent a lot of money doing the place up and then a big opening oh first of all they had a big, big opening for the national affairs office and then, uh, oh, God, that day, I'll never forget. I was actually followed by Scientologists around the place because they didn't want me near it. 
So they just like followed me. And as I moved away, they'd get closer and I just had to keep moving. And it was just the scariest feeling ever to have people stalking you. And I knew who they were as well. Like one was the Osa guy. Um, oh, what a day that was. But anyway, they opened that one. Then they opened the Victory Church. And almost straight away, bad stories began to come out. Underage boy breaks arm in some bizarre circumstance. It, it, it just went sort of downhill from there. And then the next minute, they're opening an Arcan arm. It's like, whoa, you know. And again, millions were spent. I'm not too sure of the exact figure. But you're probably talking about 20 million euro spent in Ireland for what? For a little tiny office above a hairdressing shop. And according to the census, 89 Scientologists. None of right. that makes any sense. None so of less, that makes sense. So less than 90 actual Scientologists in the entire country. Yeah. But, the, but then over just a few years, National Office in Dublin, yeah. an ideal org, uh, away from the center of Dublin, and then not just uh, the uh, the expense of creating a Narcanon um, from a, what I believe before had been like a nursing home, but all the court fight they had to go through on that, the litigation cost. Absolutely. Um, and, and none of it makes any sense. And and so I saw a lot of theories in the Irish press. One of them was that that Scientology needed uh, Ireland for the as a tax shelter. But I try to tell the press there that doesn't make any sense. Scientology pays no taxes in the U.S. They don't. They don't need a, a tax shelter when the entire U.S. is a tax shelter for the Church of Scientology. The other thing people were asking me about was: Is it have something to do with Brexit? Did they need to create a European headquarters with um, England breaking away? And I said, No, they already have a European headquarters. It's in Copenhagen, and this is not an advanced org. Um, right. in ireland it's just a bog standard ideal org yes as a national affairs office that's a little unusual but uh, pete i'm telling you I, the only thing i can come up with is around that time tom cruise went to ireland and was honored because he had done far and away oh, they yeah. made they gave him honorary irish citizenship they sure because, did. and he said something about you know, his original last name is Mapather or however you pronounce it, and that there was some connection to Ireland. Yeah. And I, I, I really personally believe that when Tom Cruise expressed this affection for Ireland and felt that he was, you know, connected to it, that in the years after that, David Miscavige has just been trying to impress his good buddy by making Ireland more of a Scientology center, even though there are no people there, there's <laughs> no money there coming into Scientology. It's all coming in from the outside. It's just bizarre. Yeah, and I agree with that I, because nothing else makes any sense. Nothing. Um, I remember that day quite well when Tom came and was given his Irish citizenship. He poured a pint of Guinness and he went to the local, uh, well, I say the local, there's a cinema in Dublin city centre where his movie Edge of Tomorrow was premiered. And as Tom is actually doing a meet and greet on the street, there's a guy following him with a portable gas heater to make sure his butt doesn't get cold. <laughs> and, I remember that, you're right. <laughs> And if anyone's interested, all they have to do is Google um, 
Tom Cruise, O'Connell Street, gas heater, and you'll get the pictures there. And uh, while that was going on, I was being assaulted by a Scientologist who knocked my phone out of my hand, stamped on it, and kicked it under a bus. That's another story. Um, six security guys who were not guards, guards is like Irish for police, um, were following me everywhere I went and stopping me from getting anywhere near the cinema. Not that I wanted to see Tom Cruise anyway, but I was actually being followed around the town by these six guys. And the way they all stood out because they had white earpieces in. And I, I you know, asked them, I said, are you guys guarders? Are, are, are you police? And they wouldn't even answer. They wouldn't even speak to me. So that was um, a pretty horrific kind of a day. Um, yes, it's tough to protest Scientology in Ireland sometimes, especially when Tom Cruise is in town. You know? Well, they used to be more aggressive. Uh, that's for sure. That Scientology, you talk about somebody taking your phone and stamping on it. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. Um, I was thinking about the Lisa McPherson Trust days back you know, oh, about 20 gosh, years ago yeah. when they were Scientologists were so aggressive with protesters. Yeah. I oh, think he was attacked, wasn't he, with, with signs and everything. Like like he was like punched and hit and, and yeah. Well, I can honestly say I've been. Um, I can also remember as well when I first began to protest and I, I had a sort of a soul-searching moment. Like, you know, do I really want to do this? Uh, <laughs> knowing what the... Uh, opposition were like and I thought well you know what it's more important that the world knows the truth about this bloody awful organization that's what's more important but what if they come after me oh my god oh what am I going to do and I concluded that the worst possible thing they could do would be to call me a pedophile and when that day came I was like hey I've made it they've called me <laughs> yeah now, they'll deny that they actually did call me a paedophile, and to be fair, they didn't. They just insinuated that I'd uploaded gay pornography featuring underage boys, which wasn't true. But anyway, that's another story altogether. But, um, oh, yeah, they came after me in a big way, um, called me a criminal, um, accused me of uh, criminal damage. And, like, to commit criminal damage, you have to be tried and convicted and I wasn't I've never been tried and convicted of anything you know so um they were on a bit of a loser there for sure but yeah they came after me and I feel better for it to be honest and I really hope that it's made some Scientologists sit up and look and actually one or two it has in fact the girl that mentioned about the dinner and how she'd been told that had organized this event and ran out halfway through she left because because of the um, higher profile that I'd got. So that was, you know, there's positives in it all, I guess. Yeah, you never know what's going to get somebody reconsidering things. That's why I'm always curious to ask people, what was it that got you to, you know, think about things? And, and it's interesting to me that your answer and Bruce Hines are kind of similar in that, you sort of had a moment of clarity when you looked at these fellow Scientologists, none of whom could afford to help you pay the bill for this hotel. And you thought, wait a minute, this, th these are, this is the, the new species of human being. 
right? Oh, Elvis. <laughs> and then the flip side of that was when Bruce was at the 9-11 at Ground Zero trying to help the first responders. And he saw all these non-Scientologists he had been told to believe were useless human beings. And they weren't. They were helping each other. They were they were supportive of each other. They were effective. And that shocked him. He, wow. You know, and so it was interesting to me that those kind of the flip side of the coin for the two of you. Yeah, I didn't know that was Bruce's um, moment. Um, I, I spent a few minutes talking to Bruce at one of the Howdy Cons. I'm not too sure which one it was. Don't think it was. Oh, it might have been. No, it wasn't Chicago. It was the one before that. But um, Denver. Yeah, lovely man. Absolute gentleman. And I'm glad he's out. But he was still in during um, um, that, was he? I didn't know that. Wow. Uh, well, he he. We talked last week, and he was saying that uh, there were a few things that, that started to make things uh, raise his doubts. Um, but then the kind of the final straw was seeing those people at Ground Zero and realizing that he'd been told lies. That is amazing about yeah. Wogs, and then. Uh, yeah. he, but it still took a, a little while before he could leave. Because it does, because you, you've got to have the courage to, to face your own thoughts. Like when Bruce had those thoughts, he probably felt the most lonely man on earth because he, he'd be going against his entire belief system. You know, it's like everything he'd, he'd, he'd held sacred for years suddenly is like questioning that. And, you know, it's a massive undertaking. Um, that's that's why I said earlier, you know, I, I have nothing but admiration for any ex-member that speaks out because it's a it's a huge amount of courage. You know? And you probably sp uh, speak to quite a few ex-Scientologists who who don't speak out publicly but communicate with you behind the scenes, right? Uh, yes, yeah, I'd say so, definitely, yeah. I want them all out, you know. <laughs> I, I like that. Uh, I think it was uh, one of the protesters from Manchester. His daughter was in for a long time. Tony, Tony, what was his name? I can't remember. Tony something. But anyway, he, his his rallying cry was, get them all out. Get them all out. You know, And that's, that's definitely what I think. Get them all out. When every Scientologist is no longer a Scientologist, we're free of it. We're, we're done, you know. Um, <laughs> Well, it's, I mean, it's, I think the pandemic has been really tough on Scientology. And I think yeah. it's, you know, um, of course, the people that are in now have weathered so much by now. Maybe there's, maybe it, they're the uh, bitter enders that are, it's going to be tougher to get them to rethink things. Um, but, I don't know. It's, 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 uh, it's always fascinating when somebody new comes along and we get to oh, hear. Yeah. What's I, love, going I on? love new exes. I just love them to bits. I love reading about them. You know, I can't get enough of those stories. It's fantastic. Yeah. But still, the stories still sound so much like the ones you and others are telling from the 80s and the 90s. Yeah, because it's the same old crap. You know, it, it's the Hubbard mindfuck. You know, that's what it is. And we're in it. Or, or we were in it, you know. Oh, he knew what he was doing as well. I, I have no doubt about that. You know, he absolutely knew what he was doing. Um, I don't know if you've spoken to John Atak about the time um, a reporter managed to catch him on the ship when they were docked in Morocco or someplace. Yeah, yeah. Four o'clock in the morning. Right. And then he said, come on, Ron, it, 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 admit it, it's all a con, isn't it? Yeah, of course it is. You know, why'd you do it then? 
well, I just like to be able to tell my wife I've put another 10 grand in the bank. You know, isn't that just brilliant? It just sums it up. It's all- Well, you know, and also um, uh, Steve Kinane wrote about that. He actually talked to that journalist. And, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, for his book. And one of the, yeah, one of the key- I remember that bit. Yeah, one of the key things that, that Hubbard admitted in that middle of the night uh, yeah. interview on the ship with nobody else around wow. was that Hubbard expressed- that he felt like a prisoner because <laughs> because he had he had created this absolutely ludicrous thing and the shocking thing for him was that so many people not only believed it but made it the center of their lives oh, wow. and so now he was surrounded by all of these people who were completely invested in everything he said and he actually felt like he was trapped in that Wow. That's that's what he told a journalist in the middle of the night, away from everybody else. Well, um, if you think about what he did, clearly he did feel like that because when he ran away to Queens and hid there for a while, and then he went off with the brokers and hid in his camper or whatever he hid, you know. So he'd obviously had enough. Um, one thing that I would like to sort of draw attention to for any people who are still in Scientology who are looking at this, ask yourself. When were all the photographs of Hubbard taken? And when was the last one taken that you ever see? Because I, I think they stop around about like 68, 69, and you don't see any official photographs after that date. So hang on a minute. He dies in 1986. So what the hell was he doing for like 16 years? You know. Um, well, we have, the, we have the photos from Jim Dinkalsi that he took in 73 when they were in Queens. That's right, but they don't count because they're not official Scientology photos. Like, right. If you look at the official Hubbard photos in his, in his, in his autobiography and his biography and everything, um, they're, they're all from the 1960s when he was in the Mediterranean. Or, you know. I, guess the, I guess the latest one that the church will show, because you're right, they won't show anything late. But the one that I guess the church does own up to is the wonderful picture taken out in the California desert when they were filming. <laughs> and he's in that green cowboy outfit <laughs> sitting on a camera dolly or whatever yeah, the heck that yeah. was, which is actually, strangely, I think may have been the first photo I ever personally saw of oh, wow. Hubbard when I was a kid in California. And it was published in a magazine there. Yeah. Um, but that I that had to have been like seventy eight or something. Really? And oh. yeah, but well, that's when he was in the desert filming, and oh, uh, nice. okay, okay. so uh, that I, I I think that doesn't doesn't the church uh, admit to that photo? I don't. Maybe I'm no, wrong about that. I'm but actually, not sure. Um, he has the big white sideboards on that one, doesn't he? Right. Yeah. Um, do you actually ever see any of the movies that he was making at that time? No, films. you know, you know what? That's one of the holy grails, and uh, and I know we're sort of ranging widely here, but but I mean, this is one of the things that keeps me going, Pete. Is I, that when I, I I've seen those movies, you know, they're terrible. Really, yeah. Terrible. I, when I started doing this twenty five years ago, there were certain things that you know, little mysteries I wanted to solve and things <laughs> I wanted to find. So it was very satisfying, for example, to finally. You know, find that woman who was the first clear set or things like that. Oh, but but wow. one of the things I've always wanted to see are those training films, <laughs> oh, and uh, they just have not been leaked, and it drives me crazy. Is that right? Oh gosh, if I was still at the org, I could get them. You know that. <laughs> yeah. 
they're probably in the org in a building you know do you know um this is going to sound terrible but like they have these like clear sound films it was like a film in a, in a big cassette case it was huge it was like easily about um 12 inches square if not bigger and you slotted this thing in to to a projector it was a, a clear sound movie projector did you ever see any of those no okay so before i was sent off to saint hill train and i was told to go in this room and just watch some movies and i just watched them one after the other but then the movies started to stick and i don't know what was going on but but the, the bulb that was lighting the movie began to burn through the, the oh man itself. and i must have personally destroyed about six movies um, <laughs> now they weren't training films um um but they were pretty awful really dreadful quality i mean e even for the time you know you'd look at them and go oh what the hell is this right but um that that was um a secret i kept from my uh superiors but they probably realized they were all broken anyway but they were just like they weren't working you know these clear sound film cassettes were just rubbish they were getting stuck in the projector and burning up so i didn't tell anybody well you got away with that one i guess pete but i did yeah listen thank you so much for uh that piece you wrote this week uh i hope that uh you can put together something else for us at some point because that was really great and uh, i just always love uh checking in with you because um you know you you've had a unique scientology experience and you're a lot of fun to talk to about it <laughs> thanks tony i feel uh, the same so there you go and uh, I guess it was Denver was the Howdy Con where Bruce was. And now, was. You, now you've got me thinking about those fun Howdy Cons. And... Yeah, and Steve was there as well. Um, yes, Steve Kinane was there. You're right. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, and Claire Headley. Well, there she lived there. So, yeah. All right, yeah. yeah. And Claire announced that it, um, of all the people there, I'd known her the longest because I knew wow. her was training at St. Hill. Wow. <laughs> All right, man. Thank you so much, and uh, hopefully have you back on again later, yeah, okay? It's a pleasure, and if I, if I can think of anything exciting and new, I shall definitely uh, add it to the list. Thank you, Pete. Okay, Tony, thanks very much. Night-night. Later. Again, again, again. Don't witness history. Ride the storm. Wait to see how reckoning